0: Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to another episode of our podcast series, The Edge. Um, I will be flying solo today. My podcast buddy, Mr. Spieler, is not available, Um, so I'm still going to do this anyway, and let's see how it goes. Um, Today, I'm very happy that I've got Mr. Jim Tiller here to talk to me. Um, So, Jim, as as I do with every one of these podcasts, my initial question is going to be kind of give me a little bit of background. How did you get started, and how did you end up with where you are today?
1: Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on, Jay. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited about this. I uh, love, the, love the podcast. Uh, long-time listener, shall we say. Um, I actually started in the very early 90s. I guess I want to say 92, 93-ish. Um, it really just started as working in a company where uh, I learned through various processes that we had essentially been hacked, I guess, like a better term. And I was investigating, well, how did this come to be? How did this materialize? And at the time I was going, I was what I considered, quote, unquote, my second career when I was getting into mechanical engineering and civil engineering. And I wanted to be an architect, all that kind of stuff in the late eighties, late nineties. And, um, but we were, you know, I was building computer networks and writing software for AutoCAD because we were using a lot of CAD systems and I was running a CAD department. And uh, anyway, I started looking into how this happened and I was like, well, wait a second. So I essentially started what we call pen testing today <laughs> uh pen testing the network to try to figure out where where and what happened and how it happened and uh and I and that's when I fell in love with unix uh, as an example and then it just sort of blew up from there I realized wait a second I got a knack for this kind of the pen testing side of things um and then I went and did security for a couple enterprises in a, what I would consider a relatively junior level we didn't really Not a lot of people were doing security in the enterprise back then uh, at all, you know, in 92, 93, 94, 95, kind of period. And so then I got into consulting. So I started working with like companies like Checkpoint, you know, in early versions of their firewall and helping companies. I remember, you know, implementing, you know, frack T1s and putting in DMARCs. And they were like, okay. And they would plop in an old 2500 Cisco router. They're like, okay, we're done. I'm like, yeah, you're not done. (laughs) You're connected to the internet now. All you've done is open yourself to all kinds of problems. Um, And then one thing led to another, and I just started basically doing consulting work. That's literally how it started in the technology space. And then short time after that, next thing like HIPAA and BS7799 was coming out. And and so I really started embracing the concept of risk. And that's when I really formed my core opinions on the concept of threat-based defenses, if you will, threat-based security programs. And and ironically, I gotta say it is, the concept of what we call today zero trust, right? And so I've never been a fan of the word trust in technology anyway. But uh yeah, so that's how I got into it. So our office, you know, almost by accident. We were hacked and I needed to figure out why. And I I've been chasing that been chasing that problem since day one.
0: So I've I've noticed, I mean, I was stalking you a little bit earlier on LinkedIn as, as you do kind of doing a bit of prep work. And I noticed that you've been kind of a CISO for a number of different companies. I I think you were at HP for a while, uh you were at Optiv for a while. Is there a kind of do you, do you have to deal with those kind of CISO roles differently? if you're at a, a, say what I would call a vendor or if you're in the enterprise? Well, how how do you think that's different? And is it different? I'm really, I mean, I know we ch-
1: chatted about this briefly, but um just before the show is it they are different, but amazingly the same. For example, is you know when shall we say talking to organizations about particular employment, there we go, well, you're not really a CISO, you've done security, you were, you were running security consulting at HP as an example. And what I find ironic about that is I was at that level, even though I was running a consulting organization uh, made up of, you know, a couple hundred professionals uh, across HP here in the Americas, um, you know, I was interfacing at the highest levels of our, of our client community and helping to define strategy and approaches and a programmatic approach. And it was, I didn't really like that you know, in early career, I was very project oriented, you know, as a consultant as would be. And I realized that there's not a lot of satisfaction necessarily in being kind of coming into an assessment and leaving. I wanted to be part of that, that path. I wanted to be on the journey with organizations. And so I started basically selling and positioning and delivering bigger and bigger projects, pretty soon running bigger teams, teams led to smaller organizations, smaller organizations led to really big ones. And so I was able to help you know, organizations like British Telecom and help work at organizations like Hewlett Packard or Lucent or Bell Labs and begin to create these capabilities. And then I I really worked on building deep relationships with organizations to help them take this on this journey. So and now as a CISO today, you know, as the global CISO for for Nash Squared, which is a you know basically an umbrella organization for a number of brands in the mostly out of the UK, is um, you're able to really kind of take that journey from its from its very onset and really kind of embrace, you know, the culture of the company and really embrace all the moving parts. And that's exciting. So the big difference is, is um, in one instance, I work with a lot of organizations around strategy and things. And a CISO, you just, you just work with one, but you get a much deeper level of involvement in that. So they're very different. But at the same time, security is, you know, Securities who I brought to the dance, and I just keep dancing, right? So, uh, it's always the core of my being.
0: I think to be honest, I mean that's that's a whole. Like, I'd love to talk with you about CISOs in general, but maybe that's a, a, a conversation for another podcast because there's there's a kind of direction I want to take this in, and I think I could easily talk about CISO and reporting lines and what the role of the CISO is and all of that. So maybe we sure. we jump on and we do another one. But I'd like to circle back a little bit about. You mentioned zero trust, and obviously that's a huge topic in the industry right now. You've got things like zero trust, you've got SSE, SASE, you've got all of these buzzwords. And I'd, I'd, I'd really like to try and get your opinion on those because I have my opinion. Um, I, I tend to think that the analysts kind of invent these to kind of get a maybe to get paid or whatever it works out to be. And I can see some value in them, but it's been around for a while. I mean, to go back to your comment about kind of being a CISO, I think you were a CISO before that it was really a a title. Um, We've spoken to people on the podcast, like Paul Simmons, and and he was kind of what he would class as an original CISO back in the day. And there weren't very many. Um, So it's one of those where Zero Trust is similar to that. Zero Trust started getting talked about long before I even heard of it. I mean, many, many years ago. And it's I think it's came back into the forefront of talk again, maybe because of the analysts, maybe because of the work John Kindervag's doing or, or because of the pandemic or because people are now actually starting to see there is something behind it and it makes sense. But I'd really be interested in what your opinion is. So let me start
1: by saying is, uh, I don't think Zero Trust is necessarily a buzzword. I think it's a real thing. Um, so one is we have to you know, be mindful of the dangers of putting it, compartmentalizing it is just something it's like, oh, what if? I, I think the main difference uh, is, is before the term zero trust became what it is, right? Mostly back in 2010 with you know key articles that were written um, and books that preceded it <clears throat> is the fact of the matter is, is sometimes it was just too nebulous conceptually about how to build um, a, a means by which to, organize how people are accessing our systems or applications or APIs, you name it, how things are interacting with information, information systems and various capabilities. So, I mean, I remember vividly being just totally threw myself into things like certificates and PKI. Um, you know, I was a huge PGP fan at the beginning. Uh, and then I really kind of jumped right into smart cards, you know, very in the early days. I mean, think about companies like Schlumberger that were doing smart cards in the late 70s and 80s. And so we were, you know, implementing smart cards. My whole point there was to have a greater bonding agent between the user of the smart card, the systems, and ultimately translating that to what they were using from that. So we were speaking in these terms, but it was extraordinarily complex. It was at best theoretical in some cases. So, you know, we were, we I say we when I say that people who were in the space at that time were thinking in these types of terms. We didn't really have a way of explaining. I mean, even security itself has gone through its own changes. You know, I remember in the early days, we called it, well, it's security. And then we didn't wanna get confused with, you know, guards and gates, so we called it information security. And then now next thing you know, we're, we say cyber and everybody immediately thinks of was cybersecurity, right? So um, I think by giving it a name, uh, it actually quantifies it and makes it easier to talk about. So yeah, I mean, are people marketing it? Are people, you know, jumping on the bandwagon, lack of a better term? I think in many ways is because now we're at a position where, um, the industry, the IT world, the business world has a much more better understanding of technology. I mean, the early days of technology, you know, only kind of, let's just be honest, people like you and I, we were the, you know, the guys in the corner, in the corner back of the building that knew how everything worked. Everybody was just struggling to figure out sending how to email, you know. Um, nowadays, technology is, is everything. So I think Pete, there's an inherent awareness of the importance of identity and importance of logging in and passwords and MFA and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's yes, it's been around for a long time. It is absolutely not nothing new. But giving it a term and giving it something that gives people a conduit to speak across multiple communities—that's the advantage. That I, I try to see the positive spin. Let's say um, of what a, uh, a coined phrase can help us do. So it is very real conceptually, and I think uh, now whether we get there or not—that's a whole other discussion, right? So
0: yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean. It was kind of pre-pandemic that zero trust became a thing for me. And before, I mean, I started, I was in a manufacturing company and I started to think about segmenting the network a bit because we had to, there were there were things in place we had to abide by that we needed to kind of segment OT equipment off and stuff like that. So I didn't like using the old kind of ACLs and NAC because they they come with problems and they're, they're prone to human error. So I started kind of going out and looking at tools to segment the network, and then I started thinking, okay, we really need to connect users just to applications, like because then it resolves the whole kind of them being on the network and being able to go every, anywhere. And then the more I kind of got intrigued by it, the more I did research, the more I looked into it. I'm like, oh, this is zero trust. like This is a thing. And, and it's funny how it doesn't really, it didn't come over to the UK for quite a while and even even now there's a lot more going on in the us i think there's a lot more talk there's a lot more events about zero trust but i am seeing it kind of pick up in the uk so i I definitely think it's not a product it's a strategy and it, it doesn't involve to me doesn't involve just technology it involves people in process and cultural changes which to be fair kind of leads me on to how we ended up really talking initially was I I saw an article of yours that you wrote and it, if I remember rightly it was about kind of there being a a resource issue um, within the cyber community and we had a we had a conversation about that and there's a number of things I want to talk about I want to talk about that as one like why why is there and is there really a, a resource issue in kind of a little bit about diversity and a little bit about those kind of things so let let's start with I guess your opinion on the whole issue of is is there actually a resource issue i mean i see on linkedin an awful lot of people looking for jobs and i see a lot of people advertising jobs why can't we get the two kind of to mix Am I? i mean you know much more than me but is there really an issue with resources so um
1: so i'm going to give you kind of a tactical response and i'm going to speak sort of very ethereal for a moment okay um So I would, I would, I I say I can reach and reference, reach out and reference uh, reports that speak to how many jobs are unfilled. And, you know, these are well publicized in various ways just Google it, you'll see them. Um, But there's also been some recent surveys about people who are in the industry today. And I read a report recently spanned, I think it was like 17 countries and 3,000 or 5,000 people were surveyed. And people who've been in on an average of seven to eight years in the industry said they were going to 22%, I think were going to quit within the next year or two years. So now, you know, so there's a gap, but it's also increasing. And I think it's because of a couple of reasons. One is um, which I'll get to more theoretical later on is what does it mean to be a security professional and how to quantify that? Believe it or not, I'm going to talk about that. But I think also is, there's a bit of a tendency, there was a sort of a rush, if you don't mind he's saying, into the cyber world. So it became very, very important. People could see, well, I can make more money, right? So we saw sort of an influx, of a lot of, shall we say, you know, people who mostly in the IT space kind of becoming more security savvy. And, and so now you have a lot of people. And then what I've seen, unfortunately, in some cases is uh, people taking on a security role and maybe didn't realize that there's a knowledge gap there, right? They may have maybe lack of a better term oversold or wasn't fully prepared. And so we have a lot of, shall we say, people who identify themselves as security experts, mostly through certification as an example, which is a whole discussion. Um, and then people hiring these security people, and they're like, well, wait a second, my security's not improving, I'm not seeing things progress necessarily. So we have a weird dynamic. Now on, on a more esoteric level, if that's a good word to use here is We unfortunately, the cybersecurity industry, for reasons I don't, I don't think, are replicated elsewhere. um, But there are over, there are nearly 500 cybersecurity certifications, and we have, we have, as an industry, as professionals, may have not have done the greatest job in the world of expressing our skills and capabilities across the full spectrum. So. certifications materialize just like regulations are coming from all forms standards i mean i I lost count nist has so many sb-800s they moved to sb-1800 kind of thing right so i mean there's not there's just so many different opinions and approaches and structures behind it so we've been communicating what our our abilities are through certification you flip that over and now you're the consumer looking to uh, acquire security professionals and you're not really sure how to articulate what you really need to get done because security is this nebulous ever changing thing so you go well I kind of need this is there a certification for it and so you have this market driving certifications because they need it to articulate what they need and then you have this the the shall we say the supply side trying to figure out what's the best certification to get to get me the right job and somewhere in the middle is the business and the human right the business looking trying to accomplish something obviously and security is part of that discussion it's not the discussion it's very important we understand that and you have people individuals that are trying to build a career and wanna do so in a way that makes them happy and fulfilled in a profession. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to navigate that in security. right? Is it technical? Is it risk-based? Is it compliance-based? Is it a SOC operations person, a threat intel person? You know, um, so in some ways, certifications have become that thing. So getting back to the core of your question, is there a gap? I think yes, but it's not as simple as we just need to train more people. I think it is, as we need to be, um, better at articulating what businesses need and aligning resource capability to their security strategy very few organizations do that they create a security strategy and they go well now I need skills to figure that out and then I think on the supply side the professional side is we're always trying to figure out okay what's kind of the next coming what's the next coolest thing that you know makes me tick and can I make money doing that right so the skills gap is a very multidimensional problem and then of course add to that sort of the whole concept around burnout which i sort of alluded to earlier uh in that one survey it's a very interesting condition
0: yeah so one of the things that i've certainly found in the past is i've gone for interviews i've sat down with the the person interviewing me and they don't know what they want i mean and i, I and i've sat there and and, and in fact Several years ago now, I guess five or so years ago, I got interviewed by a company all the way up to the top. I mean, we went through six or seven rounds of interviews. I did panel reviews. I got all the way to the top. And there was a discrepancy between what I've been told they were going to pay me and what I was actually going to get paid um, and what they actually expected of me. So I ended up kind of giving them free consultancy and sitting with them, writing down what I thought they needed and why, and then sitting in on interviews to actually fill the role. And one of the things that I said to them was, you need to kind of really understand what you're looking for, don't just throw a net out there and try and get everybody because you're gonna waste a lot of people's time and it's it's time and time's money. I mean, I was on on and off the train into London several times to, to go to these interviews at a cost of hundreds of pounds. Um, and they did that to a lot of people and they were interviewing for about 18 months before they kind of interviewed me. So I'm like, you really need to know what you want. And you really need to know what you're going to pay as well. Because you can't just like go for a process of four or five interviews and then be wildly off. I mean, I understand a business needs to to make money. But it's it's just crazy. Um, but that, I guess that kind of leads me on to diversity in it. And we briefly talked about this in the past. But it's a topic that is a delicate one to talk about, and specifically delicate, I think, for two white, middle-aged men to talk about. Um, 100%. Because I've worked in IT slash security slash infosec, whatever we want to call it, pretty much all of my life. I came out of university, I got a, a job on a support desk, and I worked my whole career. And every single training course I've been on, and I've been on quite a lot, it would be very unusual to have, firstly, a female in the room, and certainly a person of color. It was very unusual. And I, I obviously, I'm in the UK. I don't know what it was like outside of that. But what I'm seeing now is there is a diversity across all of those areas. And it's really good because I've managed teams and everyone in that team might, have, might as well have been a clone of each other. They 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 were all so similar that when a problem came up. In a way, it was easy because everyone tackled the problem in the same way. There was no discussion. There was no investigation. It was like, oh, this is the problem. This is the solution because everyone was a clone. However, that solution might not have always been the same or or the right solution. What What I saw through diversity is people think differently. They bring different ideas to the table. They come from different cultural backgrounds or they're a different sex or whatever it may be, and therefore they have a different idea. They have possibly a different solution or a different way to come to a solution and although that may cause in some ways conflict um because there'll be a discussion instead of just going straight down the same road i mean it's almost like you get to a roundabout and it's like which way do i go whereas before it was just a straight road everyone went in the same direction Um, but i'm really happy to see and certainly now when i go on on online and do cyber courses online whether they're virtual or not through the pandemic or whether i go to physical events like Black Cat or RSA, or those things. There's there's a wider range of people. Um, I'd be curious to know what you think about that. Is it is it similar in the US or are you? And I know that you help people get jobs and you you kind of fit people to jobs. Are you seeing things changing? Have they changed?
1: I would say there are, the awareness is at a point where we're starting to see an influx of change. I think uh, some elements of it are. I don't want to use the word dracony, but I think there's this overwhelming intensity to drive diversity, which is positive at its core. But um, so let me let me back up for a second. First of all, it's a global phenomenon, obviously. So um, so what I see in the UK, or I just recently got back from Europe, and uh, obviously here in the United States, the conversations are very common. I take a very two you know, very core simplistic view at diversity, and I, and I want to start by saying. For those that are out there that are, shall we say, middle-aged white guys like us, um, you know, we have to recognize that the world has changed in technology to the point where it's become more a part of people's lives. I mean, there was a time when you know whether a woman was in the room or somebody of color uh, in the room in, in and in a room full of guys talking about you know IT or IT security, um, it was just so niche. You know, we forget how niche that market was, right? And it was a bunch of dorks and geeks. And I mean, I'm, I'm a dork, I'm a geek. And, you know, and you know, usually the, the, the guys that were really good at it became salesmen, you know, you know how the drill is. And so it wasn't necessarily the most attractive environment. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've sat on a cold floor in a data center. Right. Mm -hmm. But now that technology has become more of our daily lives and the sort of, I shall always say the geekiness of it is kind of, more attractive because people now can see how technology can enable their lives enable their businesses and enable social interactions and help them do things and i think now since it's more part of our lives this generation that's now um it's it's primed and and i think uh i think it's really important for us to acknowledge that it wasn't like we were keeping people out i vividly remember in my very early days seeking out people for different opinions you know and so my core view on diversity really kind of comes down to life experience. I've always said, and to be really good at security, especially in pen testing and, or if you really want to be good at security at all, you kind of have to think like a criminal. Um, and if you're not a criminal, it's hard to think like one. And so, you know, just like, you know, law enforcement will talk to criminals in jail and interview them, learn their thinking process. You know, you struggle to learn these sort of thought process to make you a better professional. And I think that's an extreme example of what diversity means for cybersecurity. I think uh, it's a very dangerous area because we're we're not making meaningful progress, and things are getting worse. In my humble opinion, right? The the hacks are getting bigger. The the damages are getting more expansive. I mean, now we're having difficulty, you know, dealing, you know, ensuring emergency services are are available. I mean, we we've seen various hacks that, whether it be the recent one in France. Or be the ones that affected NHS earlier this year. You know they're having tangible implications. So things are bad. So we need diversity in opinions and views, and how people challenge those around them, and how people think differently. And it, it's absolutely critical to the future of c- cybersecurity. And um, and I think also we have to. And when I said dangers, I really mean is like we have to be very mindful as folks that have been in this industry for a while, like yourself. And you know, I know you spend a lot of time teaching and 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 speaking, like a lot of guys have been doing this for a while, which is phenomenal. We also have to keep kind of one eye on the fact that we don't wanna we wanna make sure that we're teaching an approach that allows people to apply their own imagination. Um, you know, so on a personal level, I will tell you that um I, I take a lot of training in different aspects, whether it be, you know, self-defense or whatever, but that part doesn't matter. And, And, you know, take a lot of training and I'm, I'm talking to my instructor. It's like, okay, so do you mean I should do this or do it this way? And then, and and he'll say, well, if you do it that way, it means these pros and cons, you do it this way, these pros and cons. And he goes, well, you know, do it the way that works best for you. Right. And I think that's the core attitude of what we as a profession need to do. As we're saying, it's like, okay, let's be caught cautious of hard fast rules at a certain i mean at the beginning there's clearly rules and cyber people need to learn i'm not suggesting we don't do that but i think we need to quickly identify those who are embracing the logic and the philosophies of cybersecurity, and then let them know that you can explore and experiment right and uh you and i let's be honest jay you and i in the beginning of all this it was all exploration there were no rules right people were figuring it out day by day and so that gave us an enormous amount of opportunity to innovate and explore different things. And uh, we need to make sure that we're creating an environment for people coming through. And we need to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to embrace the different opinions that are coming into the, into the industries. It's absolutely critical to the future of the industry and the future of, of what it means. I know I'm speaking in very big kind of global terms, but you know I, I thoroughly believe in diversity and cybersecurity is the only way we're gonna move forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I, I think you've made some pretty interesting points in what you've just said, because I I more or less got into IT as IT started. I mean, there was no internet. There were really no firewalls, and we evolved with IT. and And, and I mean, I made mistakes. We, I was allowed to make those mistakes, though. I mean, I had a managed manager or a team around me that were equally as unsure of what the answers were, because nobody had the answers, because we'd never 100%. done it before. So we could all learn by making mistakes. And I mean, I, I truly believe in life that's how you do learn. You you learn not from the things you do right, you learn from the things you do wrong. And I was very lucky to work for a number of of pretty good, I don't even like referring to them as managers, but good leaders um, that enabled me to go in a direction that might not be right, and would kind of just slightly correct me or give me those pros and cons and let my, let me make my own mind up. And therefore I think when I first started out my career, it was a bit more fun, I guess, to work in IT. And I think there was certainly less pressure and less stress because we were all walking a path that we had no idea where it was going to lead. And we I, and were I, making I, the path as we were walking it. Absolutely. We were building the cars, we were learning to drive, right? And I mentioned this to somebody actually yesterday that it's easier when you've grown with IT to have a much broader knowledge of it and i'm I'm not trying to be arrogant or say i know more than anyone else but i was around when everything was command line when you had to go into files to get windows to run when you had to get your sound card to work to play games when you had to configure your network it was all command line we all got familiar with dos and that gave us a bit of a head start on being able to do networking because switches were all command line i got i was around for tcpip and ipx and bnc networks and before cat5 and then for cat5 so you kind of layer on the knowledge and therefore you could grow with it and therefore now where i am today when i try and learn something new i have the base knowledge of learning that because i can relate back to those things but as you've said technology is now everywhere i mean my girlfriend's daughter It's just gone to university, she's 19 years old, she has a Mac, they've got Wi-Fi in the room, it's a gigabit internet, she's got her TV set up with it on the internet to watch Netflix or Disney or any of those other streaming services. She's using her phone to pay for everything, she buys tickets on her phone, she goes to events by using her phone. It's absolutely everywhere. But I think that means that when people come in, because there's now so much pressure, people are not allowed to make the mistakes that they once did in the past and people are frightened it's definitely a lot more tense and i can guarantee if you work in a cyber role and you are in a large company and you get compromised you're having a difficult time and i and and i've spent a lot of time talking to boards of directors and i've always said it's not if we get compromised it's when like we can only keep the doors close for a certain amount of time and they'll find a way in so it's quite a stressful environment so i guess i'm trying to get around to a question i I, think, I wonder if that stress and that kind of environment that we now have now where people aren't allowed to mistakes is what kind of leads to that cyber burnout and i don't really want to call it cyber burnout because i see burnout across the whole of it i i'd be curious to know what you think about cyber burnout we've talked in the past and i i asked you if it was real and you said it definitely is um but i'd be curious to know firstly where do you think it comes from and secondly how do we as leaders in that environment try to at least reduce it i don't think we can eradicate it but try and reduce it i want to in as a prelude to
1: answering the question, I want to go back and comment about how you had, you're able to make mistakes. And think about cyber today is if you make a mistake, it could mean businesses go down for extended periods, people lose jobs. Um, And I got news for you. I mean, I was the one that brought internet to a company I was working for, you know? And so if I shut it down, I vividly remember just shutting it down, not even thinking twice about it, right? It's crazy. But um, I, I think it's important that we keep that context in mind and it plays back in even to the concept, the conversation about diversity, right? Okay. So one is I think the concept of burnout is strict, is not certainly not an it only or it security only thing it's all over the place. And it usually comes with any high pressure scenario that requires a lot of uh, personal time or just, you know, it's, it's intense. And you're focused on it all the time. What I would say is, um, anybody who may not entirely believe in 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 cybersecurity, you know, uh, pressures over time hasn't really experienced them. And I and I will freely admit, you know, I've been in my fair share of IT disasters and all the way up to IT and cybersecurity disasters early in my career. You know, there wasn't you were a IT guy that knew security is really what it boiled down to back in the old days because nobody. I remember vividly being given career advice by my by vice president of the organization I was working for saying you need to get out of the security thing, get your CCIE. It's a waste of time, you know, kind of thing. Right. So it was a very different mindset back then. But for me is when I really learned about about not just burnout, but what I think is the essence of burnout is that juxtaposition of the human condition between being someone there to help a scenario and try to unwind or deal with a, a cyber attack which is very nebulous it's not like you know god forbid a car accident and somebody's bleeding profusely you know put a cat on it and and, and get going get to work right whereas you know especially when i was at kivu we focused on incident responses especially in dealing with ransomware and negotiations and all that kind of stuff and i can't tell you you know how many you know Times I was on the phone with people just just absolutely crying. you know, grown men and women, professionals of large companies, just just falling apart. And as the team, and I just have this amazing respect for incident responders who are dealing with this on a regular basis because you just you're just thrown into it, and you're having to deal with these high pressure scenarios, everything people's worlds are falling apart. Uh, and you're asked, like, they're looking at you on Zoom saying, you know, what do I do? You know, I'm going to lose my job and I'll lose my family and I'll lose my house and lose my business. You know, you're just like, wow. And so you, no matter how hard you try to separate yourself from that emotional uh, involvement, it's it's almost impossible. So, you know, when you have employees that are, you know, having personal uh, challenges and sacrifices that because of their job, but they do it because they care, um, it's a very tough situation. And I'm, and I'm not saying that's unique to IR or instant respond people, you see it in sock analysts you see it at the CISO level you see it at managers and vps and, and i'm not saying again not just with security but i'm saying for me this is my world and i tend to associate with it is you have this almost unknown at any point in time you know somebody can toss a grenade in the middle of your network full stop right so you have this pending almost doom aspect of it to it all right and you feel like you know how can I make things better? And so I find that people who are really in security. They wake up in the morning, they think security, they do some research, look at the news, go to work and then work. And then they absolutely take their work home with them. And you see a lot of that in IT just in general. Um, again, not suggesting it doesn't exist in other industries, but um, it, I think there's a personal and human aspect that kind of gets lost. So the burnout's real. Again, I think it happens in a lot of areas. It just seems to be very acute in cybersecurity because... It's all over the news now. It can happen at any point in time. And if there's a weakness that you missed, which there always will be, then there's this, you know, whether between fear and guilt. And uh it's it's just an emotional process. And I think it's just getting worse, if I may be so bold.
0: <laughs> yeah. See, we did a podcast recently with um Lisa Lorenzen. And we talked a little bit about cyber burnout because she took a bit of a step back from the, the role she was in because she was burnt out I mean and and she she said to us that she was in a very good position that she could do that and and many people aren't um but she said to us when we asked her the question that it was really to do with wanting to bring her a game Mm. every day and and give a hundred percent and she could no longer do that she was tired she was worn out she'd gone from kind of stresses and the pressures of the pandemic and then she needed to get on a plane like every week and go to events and talk and and do all that kind of stuff and she talked quite a lot about she felt that she wasn't doing enough and i think a lot of people feel that and it's not necessarily i mean i've been doing the role i'm in now for 10 months I definitely felt like I was failing for six of those months. And imposter syndrome was was kicking in. And I'd gone from a, a role where I was pretty confident and comfortable, and I would built the environment, the IT environment over a 12 year period. I had a lot of friends there, I had a big network and I had the trust of the business. So if I, if I, to be blunt, if I did make a big mistake, I had respect from the business and also the 10 years or 12 years that I've been there, the history to go for them to be able to say, Jay's actually quite good at this. This was a one-off. Or if we got compromised, we know Jay's heart's in the right place. He's tries to do everything we can. But there's a lot of talk about people moving all over the place now within a year, within two years. A CISO, I think, only spends like two years in a role. Yeah, don't, don't, now, don't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like my job. <laughs> so so people, people go to a role, they don't really build the credibility for whatever reason or the respect or there's something going on and they, they move on. And therefore, if there is a problem when they're there, they don't necessarily get the support they needed. And I mean, I knew I had that support. I knew if something gone wrong, which it it did, we had problems. But I knew that people would stand by me and support me in that battle against the bad guys. I wasn't the bad guy. I was the guy trying to fight the bad guys. And I was doing everything I possibly could. And I mean, I would sit down with the board of directors and be like, I need more money. I think we've got issues here the doors open over here we need to do this we need to do that and i quite often than not it was a balancing act between how much they would give me and how many doors i could close but i had that kind of support and i wonder if that just doesn't exist now and i wonder if that's something that companies need to start doing is not blaming their it and cyber teams if they get compromised because most of those people are doing the best they can. And and sometimes in some cases, many people do take their work home. I mean, I got into IT because I love technology, I'm a geek, I'm a nerd, and I wanted to help people, as do most people that do this job. Because if, you, if you're not that kind of person, you'll do it for six months and think, this is too hard, I'm going somewhere else. Because it is a nonstop job and it is a lot of pressure. So you really need to enjoy what you're doing. So I'm curious if, Companies just need to put their arms around people a bit and say, look, we've got you because we know you're fighting the right causes for us.
1: It, it, it's really, that's a really interesting thing because, um, yeah, it's hard to build because for you to have built that respect and credibility over those 10 years, it's because there were times when those people failed and you were there to to help them through a, through a challenging time in some way, shape or form. And so it, it takes time for people to trust people. I, I've always said... No matter how much you try to make things virtual, how much you try to make things technical, it's it's always about people interacting, right? And um, you know, and I always say people buy from people, you know. So whether like my time at Optive and we would sell you know tons of services and product, at the end of the day, it was a relationship that you formed with the purchasing person because at end of the, at the end of that day, <laughs> um, you would. Somebody is making a decision, whether a hiring decision or whatever, or an investment decision, even at the board level or CEO or senior leader is they're putting their, they're stamping their name and their career on it. Okay. And so it's just like everything, it all kind of moves downhill. And, and I find that, and I can say this about the IT and IT security world only because I've lived it I'm sure it exists in other industries, but there's this overwhelming sense of not letting people down. You don't want the bad guy to win. Um, and I think some companies recognize that character and try to embrace people sooner in the process to your point earlier. Um, I, I, I think the, what's going to happen, I guess what I'm trying to make is it takes time to build human relationships to where it's okay. You know, Jay means well, or yeah, Jim may have screwed up and, but you know, we're not going to hold Jim fully accountable kind of thing. We'll just, you know, whatever, wrap his knuckles. So, but I, I think. that takes so much time to learn time to develop because we're just human because i think it's also about having companies understand that to your point earlier it's not if when okay and there is no perfect set of defenses you can't protect everything all the time you can't do it equally you can only do what you can do and unfortunately attackers have an infinite amount of time and energy uh, where you have to defend against all those they need one you know all the you know insert you know, common security phraseology here. But I I think is, we have to begin to start preparing organizations more effectively. I know we do it through risk assessments. I know we do it through threat intelligence. And we know we're always saying things are going to happen and you need to spend money. I I think what it is, is we need to help them understand is not necessarily teach them, but help articulate in ways that translate to the broader aspects of business risk they and un- let me tell you something I, I i'm gonna make a point here that i've made a number of times and i'm if you don't mind i'm gonna use this opportunity to say it one more time is there's this overwhelming sense i see in security leadership today that security is the center of the world and you know the board just doesn't understand it kind of thing first of all ceos executives and the board let me tell you they know risk full stop okay um they're dealing with challenges and liabilities that a lot of senior security leaders have actually zero visibility into, right? So first is recognizing you're part of a risk and liability ecosystem when it comes to the senior executive team. Um, when you realize that you're part of it, then it's less about, oh, they don't know and I need to teach them and talk to them like they're stupid. No, is we need to learn the, their language of risk. So we're able to you know, juxtapose relatively complex issues in ways that, They can then not just understand but also digest within the larger risk making decision process against their own you know levels of risk appetite so where where am i going with this is basically um the the needs of leadership uh, in this particular space is being able to not just simply articulate but to understand that these things are going to happen there is no silver bullet and i know it sounds very sort of old school But for people to be effective in their job they need to know it's okay to make mistakes that's it full stop and and that's what doesn't quite exist today and because it doesn't exist today people burn themselves out they and they think they they run to another job or shall i say run away from their current job to another one when in fact you should always be running to a job never away from a job right um and so i think that's the ultimate thing is people in leadership positions beyond IT and security up above if you will recognizing it's going to happen so how do we you know minimize that and take the best of our team and understand they're doing their best and and doing and making those proper actions it's a very difficult thing to articulate i'm sorry if i'm babbling a little bit
0: no no i i think you've you made the point perfectly i mean i i'm hoping because cyber is relatively new in 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 regard to kind of IT um, it kind of spawned out of IT and cyber became a, became a thing. So I think at some point we're we're gonna come to like the tipping point and things are gonna mm. have to change because mm. otherwise we won't be able to fill roles. People will be moving every three months. Mm. There'll be, I mean, ransomware is on the rise and all of these things are rising. So it's not gonna get any easier. I, I think we're we're getting to that point where things are gonna change. Um, but I'm looking at the time, and I'm seeing that time's ticking. It's been great talking to you. <laughs> I want to um, kind of, I want to kind of ask you a couple more questions before before we wrap. So I'll ask you kind of if you could advise. So it's kind of a twofold question. If you could go back and advise your 18 year old self something from today, what would you do? What would your advice be? And also, if you were 18 today. Trying to get into the kind of cyber environment, um, what would that advice be? And it might be the same advice, it might be different advice.
1: Oh my gosh. You know, um, wow, that's really hard. There's literally a gazillion things, right? So I think if I could go back in time and tell myself something, uh, it probably have nothing to do with career. It'd have to do with like, you know, that decision you made when you were 24, you know, that kind of stuff, right? But, um, you know, my gut reaction to that is, you know, be very entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I didn't recognize and the generation that I was, or we were for that matter is, you know, the birth of the internet and just how amazing it would become, you know, versions one, two, and three and all that kind of junk. And um, you know, and and it was, it was the wild, wild West. I mean, I'm sure we both have some pretty bonker stories. I mean, I got tons of them and um, you know, and still to this day, I, you know, I go, yeah, well, you know, I wrote an article about that in 1994, you know, you just like, man, I just should have got ahead of it. So my advice to me when I was younger is recognize the, the craziness that you're we going into because remember in the eighties, I was looking at my grandparents going, man, they were there at the, you know, the, in, you know, the invention or proliferation of the vehicle all the way through to watching us go to the moon and the space shuttle, you know, I'll never be like that. And little did I know the internet was going to represent just this massive social and global change that we see today. Um, so I should I, I really should have embraced that more, more deeply. Right. But I did get lucky and find security early in my career. So I didn't, I didn't screw up too bad. Um, what I tell an eighteen-year-old today—that—that that actually, that for me, that's a lot more responsibility. Um, I'm always afraid of taking my old guy views and trying to put it on the young. So, because uh, I've had that happen to be a lot, by the way. Um, so, uh, I, I would say is um, there's still opportunities to be a wonderful entrepreneur. I mean, there's there's so many interesting things happening. I'm not saying that the internet boom is over. Um, digitization, uh, uh, all the sort of transformation activities are happening. I would say if you're 18 the whole world is changing right so how we're looking at energy production and consumption and and politics and and social and how these how technology plays a role in that obviously i would say is um you know there are some sciences that are worth digging into and i still think computer science is a big one i would really jump into um Uh, uh, quantum computing. If I was 18 right now, I would go bonkers on quantum computing. I think uh, that's where it's all going for good, bad indifference. Uh, Whatever you think it's going to be, all I know is it's going to be big. And um, there's a very itty bitty tiny community that really understands that deeply from a practicality standpoint. Obviously, there's plenty of science and theoretical science on quantum mechanics and quantum computing, but people at Google and IBM and um, HP and all these guys that are making quantum computers, um, that's where the heart of the future is in my, in my mind for, for good
0: or for bad, (laughs) but, uh, you know, that's where I would focus my energy. I think that's some good advice in both camps. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you two kind of fun questions that are close to my heart before we wrap. Okay. And John's going to laugh when he listens to this, uh, question number one is what's the best meal you've ever had? (laughs) And question two is what would your dream vacation be? Okay. Wow, best meal I've ever had. Um
1: you know, it was me and my wife went to Mexico. We stayed at this really amazing place, and uh they pulled a redfish out of the sea and 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 made fish tacos for us. And it was between the location, being there with my my beautiful wife and eating that. That was that was the best meal ever. <laughs> um, oh, I'm sorry, what was the second question? I apologize. Dream vacation best vacation. Oh my gosh. It's the same thing. Uh, actually, I don't know. I think, uh, I always wanted to go to Aruba and go windsurfing. I I grew up windsurfing, um, and that kind of stuff, or I, I, I do a lot of horseback riding. So I would love to, uh, I've had horses. Um, I'm a huge horse guy. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, I, I'd rode horses and I'd like to go back to the snowy mountains in Australia and go riding again, or maybe Montana, something like a horseback, vacation maybe even intermingle that with some horseback hunting maybe some elk hunting i think that would just be amazing honestly
0: see funnily enough there's not a lot in life i'm scared of i'm scared of scorpions because mm-hmm. just don't like them and there's a story to that my friend had a scorpion tank and they all fell out once when we were kids and we, we couldn't <laughs> couldn't find them and it scared me it's and the a little h- ones you gotta be afraid of that's for yeah sure. li- and 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 horses I just, oh. <laughs> I, a friend of mine when we were really really young had a horse And she got kicked by it when she was cleaning it out and it put Mm -hmm. me off horses forever. And I've, I've been on the back of one, but they frightened me. Um, But anyway, I think that's a wrap. I mean, it has been absolutely awesome to speak to you. Um, I'm I'm a little bit gutted is John's not here to participate, but that, that, that does mean that we'll have to come back and do it again. Uh, I'd really like to talk with you about kind of the role of the CISO and who they should report to, but that's a whole topic in itself. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on. It's been brilliant. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Jay. It's been it's been a joy. And I would love to be able to come back and uh but uh it was fun talking. I really appreciate the opportunity. I really do. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you.